This is a story about two houses. One has 540 doors, and each of these doors is so wide that 800 men can walk shoulder to shoulder through them. And few people, perhaps no living human being has ever seen it. The other house has only one door, as far as I know, but can be seen by the living as clear as day. It is only slightly larger than your average European house, and though no nuclear family lives inside of it, it has a larger population than the city of Paris. The houses are different, but they share a common entrance. The entrance is deaf. But mere death is not enough. Access is granted only to those who were deemed to pay the ultimate sacrifice, those who gave their lives in war, sometimes for a country, sometimes for a warlord, and some yet were deemed larger than life, and for the sake of their heroic nature were invited to participate in the communion of gods. To paraphrase a Norse poem, everybody knows them, but few know what nourishment they take. Our story will focus on war, carnage, the terrible things that human beings do to each other, the great heroic deeds that they performed, and the horrible atrocities and crimes they committed. Celebrated and detested, mourned and feared. One of these houses is of course Valhalla, the Norse afterlife location where fallen warriors allegedly went after they died. A heavenly parallel to the luxuries promised by the Iron Age military elite, where the god Odin sat in the high seat and played a part comparable to the local king or chieftain, spoiling his retainers with pork and alcohol. To many people around the European continent, whatever they knew about Norse culture probably filled them with hate and disgust. The victims of the Vikings saw them as pirates and marauders. To them, the only good Viking was a dead Viking. While many Vikings themselves, at least according to the poetic propaganda they left behind, considered death in battle a privilege. And for the myth of Valhalla, the Viking Age raiding party is elevated to a function of cosmic importance. Scholars generally differ a little bit about how the idea of Valhalla was actually applied, theologically speaking, in the pre-Christian religion. Say, did you go to Valhalla if you died any kind of military death? Or was it reserved for the cream of the crop? Those are the sort of things that are contested, but whatever the case is, violent death was nonetheless a matter of cultural celebration. And we will explore that as we go further along. Either way, the Vikings gave their neighbors ample reason to hate them. In boyhood, the Viking-era poet Egil Skallagrimsson committed to poetry a romanticized notion of traveling to strange lands and chopping down its inhabitants. From their perspective, Egil must have seemed like a cruel pagan monster, but you and I can also read his saga and the poetry that he composed. He was the first Norse poet to really describe his personal emotions and inner life, and there we can see that he was also a sensitive, thoughtful, but traumatized human being most of this particular prologue episode will not be dedicated so much to Norse mythology. I will save that for the episodes to come. In this episode, I shall be focusing on the other among the two aforementioned houses. The concept 
and the physical location of Yasukuni, a sort of Japanese parallel to Valhalla, which came to fruition in the decades leading up to and during World War II, and retains a haunting presence in Japan even to this day. Needless to say, in these episodes I will be talking a lot about ideology. That's to say how ideas are deployed for the exercise of power. And I don't want to do this to serve you any platitudes about power structures and how war is held, because you already know all about that. Some of the mythic subjects tackled here have certainly been used and abused for nefarious reasons. They've been tooled and manipulated and tampered with. Sometimes along the way, sometimes by later scribes and scholars, and in some cases, by the inventors of the tradition themselves. But to say that the warrior ethos that is glorified in these myths was nothing more than a tool for the exercise of power and abuse? That's far too simple, I think. Like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. My approach here is multivalent. It can be that and many other things as well. I'm going to be very critical, but instead of shitting in the well, I shall try to take this tangled mess of rights and wrongs for what it is. That's my debt to history. Sometimes, these stories even helped people overcome traumatic experiences. And at the very least, if nothing else, they still stand out as curious, sacred stories of the past we can use to create cautionary tales and rouse a sense of humanity even in the most inhumane of situations. I want this to be at the back of your head throughout this series. But in this particular episode, I'm going to be focusing on the cautionary tale. I want to beat you over the head with the fact that cynical ideological manipulation is not a recent innovation in human psychology. And without revealing too much too early, there might have been aspects of this in the development and articulation of the mythology and cult surrounding Valhalla in the Scandinavian warrior elite, which have some uncanny parallels to the hero worship of Yasukuni Shrine, for better or worse. In this particular episode, I use Japan for a very specific purpose, namely to investigate how the Japanese government manipulated symbols, aesthetics, and myth and ritual to promote military ideology. Imagine if we only knew about Japan's involvement in World War II from the remnants of Japanese state propaganda. Well, that is in part the sort of situation we're in when we're talking about Valhalla. Some of our most important sources for the idea of Valhalla comes from people who were commissioned to sing the praises of military leaders and their business. There's every reason to believe that Valhalla was not just an afterlife belief that developed organically on its own, but something that was consciously cultivated to the benefit of the military elite. That's one part of the story. But on the other hand, when certain medieval chroniclers picked up on this concept later on, they distorted Valhalla to create a sort of parody of paganism that portrayed it as a sort of death cult. And that's not exactly credible either, because it's entirely removed from the original context and sort of holds the old mythology hostage against itself. Either category of text expects us to believe that Scandinavia's Iron Age warriors welcomed and even looked forward to dying on the battlefield, considering it the greatest of all honors which in turn may be comparable to how death and sacrifice in Imperial Japan is distorted in Western ideas about the personal convictions of Japanese soldiers during the Asia-Pacific War. But how much can we trust these sources? I gather that there's a glimmer of truth there, but the waters are so muddied by propaganda and agendas pulling us in all sorts of directions. This is my foolhardy attempt at separating some of the layers between the real and the ideal. I figured we had too much fun in the last episode, so I'm kicking off 2020 
with a dowsing of fuel for your seasonal depression. Because this episode is going to be unusually dark. My name is Erik Stolson, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. This is episode 25, The Temple of Reluctant Gods. You and I are two cherry blossoms. We both bloom for his majesty's country. We dream in the bed of bullets. Even if we fall separately, the capital of flowers is Yazukuni Shrine, where we meet each other in the treetops in spring. Those words are from Doki no Sakura, a Japanese patriotic song frequently sung by the soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army in the latter stages of the Asia-Pacific War. It ticks many boxes of Japanese imperial propaganda typical of its time. Devotion to the emperor as a symbol of Japan itself, the vainness of life as expressed by the flower, and the cherry blossom in particular, extra beautiful precisely because it is temporary, the idealization of martyrdom, the importance of the good and meaningful death. The rallying point and the implications of the presence of the holy Yasukuni shrine, where the spirits of the dead soldiers will meet again, much like the warriors of Valhalla in the Old Norse imagination. Where the cherry trees will recall their bloom and fall every spring, not entirely unlike the Norse Valhalla, where the warriors rise every morning to die in battle again and again, and feast in communion with the heavenly warlord every night. The shrine maidens working at Yasukuni Shrine play a comparable role to that of the Valkyries of Old Norse myth, responsible not only for nourishing the war dead, but entertaining them as well. Shrine maidens do play what we may consider a religious specialist function, but while the Miko the proper term for Shrine Maiden in the past played more of a shamanistic role as a medium that the kami could take possession of. Today, being a Shrine Maiden is usually just a part-time job, usually held by co-eds under a certain age because the deities that live within the shrine apparently have a preference for younger women. The clergy of Shinto shrines, and Yasukuni in particular, often do a variety of tasks that we don't usually associate with religious specialists. For example, raking leaves to make the shrine space more beautiful, both to people and deities alike. As well as hosting guided tours, selling tickets, and doing administrative work. Hence, one of my main sources for this episode uses the term ritual janitors to denote the shrine's religious functionaries. But what is Yasukuni Jinja, or shrine, exactly? Well... The short version is that Yasukuni is a Shinto shrine dedicated to housing the spirits of those who died in Japanese military service since the late 19th century. But spirits may actually be a misnomer, because enshrinement entails something a little bigger. The war dead of Yasukuni have transcended their human spirit and become kami, the Shinto equivalent of gods. 
though for the sake of balance, it should be said that the Shinto idea of kami is relatively fluent between what would be considered gods and what would be considered spirits in the Western traditions. Originally established as the, and I'm gonna butcher it, the Tokyo Shokonsha, or the Shrine to Summon Souls in 1869, Yasukuni's humble origins was a central shrine based on a system of shrines commemorating dead champions of the Meiji Restoration. This itself was based on another established tradition of enshrining fallen individual retainers of local warlords and imperial loyalists. The Meiji era, of course, is when Japan emerged as a unified nation-state. And prior to that, the notion of dying for Japan would have been alien considering that Japan consisted of numerous different factions. Now, however, local shrines started popping up across Japan dedicated to the summoning of the souls of the war dead. The spirits did not live in these shrines because of what we might call death pollution. Generally speaking, death was a Buddhist concern in Japanese culture at the time and not necessarily something that belonged in a Shinto shrine. After all, we may consider Shinto a set of practices and beliefs with life as its main concern, and in fact has some major taboos against death, ghosts, and vengeful spirits. It's simply not good to have the spirits of the dead poking around where they shouldn't be. Death was a polluted force, and though the spirits of the newly departed demanded and deserved offerings, they could not be permitted to enter the main sanctuary of the shrines, because those who had newly died, and especially those who had died violent deaths, were particularly saturated with death pollution. Instead, these shrines had dedicated gardens where priests could call the souls to gather and receive praise and sacrifices. Kind of like bird feeders for ghosts. In the decades following its founding, Yasukuni eventually developed into THE Japanese War Memorial and served to consolidate the commemoration of the war dead, meaning that every individual commemorated at the local shrines was now also being commemorated at Yasukuni. People eventually started flocking to Yasukuni, but not for the intended reasons. Because war and martyrdom were concepts that did not really flow with the main populace. It belonged to specific classes of people in Japanese society, and the battles in question were often fought in Japan's provinces and didn't really involve the civilian population anyway. The reason why the citizens of Tokyo came to Yasukuni was because Yasukuni had established itself as an arena for popular entertainment. This was because Tokyo had banned street vendors and circuses within the city limits. However, Yasukuni was under military control and therefore served as a loophole where people could go to enjoy carnivals, gawk at sideshow freaks, watch geisha performances, and see horse races. But as Japan emerged as a modern military nation, fighting wars in places like Russia and Manchuria, Yasukuni Shrine began to develop as a site of celebration of Japanese military success. Prior to that, Yasukuni had already invented rituals to purify the dead, which allowed their spirits to be fully enshrined and take their dwelling on site. It seems intuitive that they would develop such a ritual because Shinto is very concerned with ritual purity. All but the smallest shrines have stations where attendants can wash their hands and mouth, which they are expected to do before they continue their tour of the grounds. The purification ritual not only absolved them from the pollution of death, 
it also erased the proverbial browser history of their soul. Any sins that they may have committed in their lives go away. In fact, they cease to exist as individuals altogether. Once enshrined, they are no longer the spirits of the sons, fathers, brothers, and uncles who died at war, but absorbed into a collective of kami. They have become gods and must go to live in a house walled off from the public behind the main sanctuary. Between 1931 and 1945, Japan was in a state of perpetual war somewhere around the Pacific Ocean at any given moment. Yasukuni took a central seat in the national military and arguably fascist imagination. Riding the wave of popularity as an entertainment venue alongside its commemorative military function, the imperial army entrenched the notion that Yasukuni was the destination of all imperial military martyrs with death as the ultimate expression of the bond between the soldier and the emperor, one that arguably mirrors the heroic enshrinement of individual retainers, only on a massive national scale. If it sounds bureaucratic, that is because it was, but it also coincides somewhat with new logistical issues regarding the remains of the dead on the front lines. Initially, soundly retrievable remains of dead soldiers were brought back in ash boxes, but as the war intensified, this proved to be quite difficult. Say, what about those who were lost at sea, or those who were otherwise missing in action? And by the way, this is where it seems fitting to mention that the name Yasukuni means pacifying land. It would be tempting to see Japanese militarism here as comparable to how Norse skaldic poets describe peace as the result of the strong military prowess of charismatic leaders, and I'm sure that many people have seen it in kind of a comparable way. However, some scholars have indeed pointed out a deeper folk religious aspect here, and that the pacifying in question is not necessarily about forcing through peace by military conquest, but about pacifying the vengeful spirits of the war dead. One oddity of Yasukuni isn't just the invention of a new category of deity to worship, it is also unique in that the number of gods worshipped there is ever expanding. At the turn of the 19th and 20th century, Yasukuni contained some 30,000 deified war dead. By the end of World War II, the number of kami in Yasukuni had risen to just short of two and a half million. Death seems to be omnipresent in literature dealing with the Japanese army at this time, in part because death and sacrifice was omnipresent in the training of Japanese soldiers as well. According to Emiko Onukitirni, the author of Kamikaze Diaries, which is one of the sources for this episode, where other soldiers were told to kill, Japanese soldiers were told to die. Allegedly, one of the first things Japanese recruits learned was to kill themselves to avoid being captured. At the end of the war, Japan created the Tokotai, or special attack units, who were ordered to ram their planes into enemy targets, more widely known by the unofficial term Kamikaze, or Divine Winds. The imperial military machine desired to create the impression that these were all volunteers and solidified the notion in western minds that the Japanese were fanatic automatons all too eager to give their lives for the glory of the empire. When Japan eventually capitulated, America put Shinto on the chopping block, branding it as the ideology that drove Japan's imperial army to commit the atrocities it did when some might argue that it is in fact the other way around, and that state Shinto as it existed between 1900 and 1945 was a militaristic state appropriation of Japanese indigenous traditions. And here's the thing, I'm not sure what is right and wrong 
in this can of worms that is Yasukuni Shrine. Today it is emblematic of Japan's wartime shame, or lack thereof, according to some. Foreign critique, and there is no shortage of that, tends to emphasize the shrine as a political space first and foremost, and one where some of the worst crimes of the imperial army are excused, glossed over, and even celebrated, on account of the 14 or so Class A war criminals enshrined among the two and a half million strong collective. Yasukuni remains a point of contention for inter-Asian tension between Japan and its neighbors across the waters, who consider the site symbolic of injustices committed against them. There are, for example, 20,000 Taiwanese aboriginals enshrined in Yasukuni who were more or less forced into colonial service. In a bizarrely tangent synchronicity, South Korea has even, in part probably to flex on Japan's loss in World War II, argued that the Sea of Japan, which stands between them, ought to be renamed the Sea of Peace, which in Japanese would be called Yasu-uni, which would be oddly unfavorable to the Koreans given that the name obviously reminds the Japanese speaker of a certain point of controversy between the nations. There's one extreme which sees it as a temple where war criminals are literally worshipped as gods, and there's the other extreme which plays down or outright denies that any atrocities were committed at all, while simultaneously making veiled tributes to Japan's past aggressions. However, this seems to be kind of a false dichotomy because Yasukuni appears to be neither nor for most of the Japanese people who actually visit it. That is not to say that there's not a presence of both of these extremes there. From what I can tell, there is no definite academic consensus about the role and function of the site. Some scholars have even pointed out that every group that approaches the shrine, whether they are sympathetic or not, managed to interpret Yasukuni in accordance with their own historical identity and their beliefs. In that way, Yasukuni is a catalyst of identities that often clash with each other. The late religious historian Jan-Emil Kolste in his Rethinking Yasukuni refers to an interesting perspective that Yasukuni can be characterized as a process of emotional alchemy, where sorrow and grief is uh, transformed into honor and pride. In my view, Yasukuni seems to be both, and neither of these things. When I went to Japan, I was extremely curious about this site, and wanted to see what a random Japanese individual might think of this place. It took a little bit of Dutch courage to ask, but eventually I encountered a fellow drunkard in a bar in Tokyo who I felt like I could ask. And so I did. I asked him what he thought about Yasukuni. And he fought for a moment and smiled and said, it is a beautiful place. But what about the controversies? He didn't exactly deny anything, and it didn't really seem to affect his view of Yasukuni as an important sacred site. He just didn't seem to have a clear opinion about it. Rather, he mentioned that his uncle died in the Pacific Theater, which of course implies that he lives on as a deity at Yasukuni Shrine. An uncle he had never met, of course, because he died long before he was actually born. And this made sense to me. I could relate to it on some level. Because Norway has an equivalent to that function. Not in any specific place, but a series of books called Våre Fallne, are fallen. These contain 11,000 or so entries with portraits and notes about each of Norway's casualties during World War II. 
Admittedly, that's not a lot of people compared to some other countries, but it relates specifically to a sort of second-hand trauma that affected my father's side of the family in the form of the ghost of my great-uncle Ingolf. And I say ghost because that's probably the best way to put it. It's not that Ingolf wasn't there, because he definitely was, in a way. If he hadn't been, there would just be nothing to talk about, but Uncle Ingolf had a definite presence in the imagination of my father's side of the family. Oftentimes, my father would take the book down from the shelf and show us his portrait, or he would pop up in conversations during Christmas dinners and family gatherings. It was always as if there should have been an extra chair there. And this is despite a number of factors. First of all, this is a guy I never met. He was two generations removed from me. My father never met him, nor did my aunt or uncle. He was dead long before my grandmother even met my grandfather. And my grandfather didn't really meet him many times either. As my grandfather grew up in an orphanage. He had several siblings, but they were all scattered around. His father was actually very much alive, but he chose the sailor's life until, well, the war broke out. My grandpa didn't even know any of his siblings at first, but that all changed one day when he was sent to the principal's office for fighting with an older kid. Turns out that this older kid was his big brother Ingolf, and that's how they got introduced. When Ingolf turned 16 in 1944, during the German occupation, it meant that Ingolf could no longer stay at the orphanage where he lived. My great-grandfather wouldn't take him in, and sent him to sea in the middle of a war that he himself refused to sail in. Ingolf Hansen only sailed for two weeks before his ship struck a mine on August 11th, 1944. It is odd because the siblings of my grandfather who survived the war never really liked each other. My great-grandfather lived until 1982 and he was kind of an asshole. It's probably all about the fact that this poor fucker never got the chance. And the only way to keep him from being forgotten, and hence dying the ultimate death, the social death, is by keeping him in a sort of heroic memory loop, despite the utter pointlessness of his apparently random death as a teenage deckhand. I don't know quite what it is, but I don't think it is hero worship exactly, because I don't think there is much heroic about Ingolf or his death. But when I spoke to my friend in that Japanese bar, I could understand why somebody would desire to have a space where that sort of grief could be expressed. These places are often explained as occasions where losses are elevated to a national or cosmic importance and therefore justified. To me, I think it's more about the notion that the dead have a place to be consoled. And maybe my emphasis here is more tragic than heroic, but... Isn't the hero always kind of a tragic figure? I don't know, in the Indo-European and uh, Greek and Roman Norse tradition as well. It's usually an important distinction between gods and heroes that heroes have to die in order to be heroes. Yet with the Eirei, the kami living in Yasukuni Shrine, their godhood is secured precisely because they have died. With the important distinction that they are not individuals, but a collective. Whatever process happened to bring those kami into Yasukuni Shrine doesn't matter anymore. I can certainly see some beauty in that, yeah? 
it isn't really that different from the Christian idea of salvation either. And it may be weird coming from a person who doesn't believe that humanity needs to be saved in the first place. But all of this isn't to say that there aren't some issues with the deification of the war dead either. And it's easy to forget that the purification rituals needed to deify the dead were jury-rigged by the state Shinto military-industrial complex, creating exceptions that didn't really exist originally in Japanese society. It's not that I have any issues with invented traditions, but the context here is kind of interesting. Some of these people are responsible for planning and carrying out atrocious things. On the one hand, it apparently doesn't matter what any of those guys did in their lives, but on the other, that obviously isn't true, because it is their commitment and death in war that qualified them to be enshrined in the first place. There are a ton of good reasons to criticize Yasukuni, but I'm not entirely convinced by those who say that Yasukuni is just a monument to celebrate Japanese war crimes, because that denies the Japanese an important medium to digest real historical traumas. Yasukuni ought to be a place of reflection about all of those things, but there are actors who want it to be solely about this thing or the other. Everybody seems to go to Yasukuni to have their preconceptions confirmed, whether they are for or against it. But I find that stance to be both morally and intellectually unsound. To really make up my mind, I had to go there myself. And that being said, one of my biggest mistakes approaching the subject of Yasukuni was taking for granted that the Japanese public considered enshrinement unproblematic and honorable. This wasn't always the case. There were people who didn't support the government, didn't believe in Shinto, or simply considered enshrinement to intrude upon the family's right to access dead relatives. Seeing the aspect of ancestor worship in Japanese folk religion, I would not be surprised if some people had big issues with this, because enshrinement officially separated the spirits of the dead from their living relatives. Imagine being told that the state has decreed that the spirit of your son has been absorbed by a vague collective of national deities and has effectively become imperial military property. I can only imagine how pissed I would have been if I was mourning a son and had to stand by as ritual specialists perform a process that, according to theology, denies me any direct means of interacting with my own child. In the guise of Shinto, there's officially no dogma, but there are some principles, and they like to present these principles as mere facts of nature. Once a cup of water is emptied into the river, it is gone. The same cup of water can never be extracted ever again. Even during the war, at a time when the imperial state had managed to create the connotation that kami were first and foremost deified human beings, Yasukuni enshrinement ceremonies were often picketed by bereaved families who cried out the names of their loved ones and outright called the priests and shrine maidens murderers. Those accusations can be interpreted in a number of ways. One might say that uh, the priests are killing the spirits of the dead by absorbing them into the anonymous kami collective. But some may have seen it in a more conspicuously ideological light. In Rethinking Yasukuni, Yanemil Kolster says that the shrine might have been seen as a machine that produced the circumstances of war and coerced the mentality of self-sacrifice. The shrine has also tended to be inconsistent about how the kami are supposed to be addressed. For example, you can address your worship towards a specific name, but will, in another context, basically say that this is nonsense. Supposedly, the very moment that the war dead are deified, they are cut off from the general public. They're not accessible anymore. 
And then you're telling me that this whole ritual that the families, widows, and children cannot consent to was invented just a few years ago and would have been historically considered a theological impossibility if they hadn't just pulled it out of their asses? That would have been bad enough if these fucking vampires didn't also manipulate the testimonies and put their victims on pedestals with their own blood-soaked fucking hands. But the kami aren't just passively chilling in their cottage on the site either. Some authorities have expressed that the kami are in fact fighting a cosmic battle. They go ahead of the army and protect the nation. Therefore, you can definitely say that the function of the war dead, the Ere, is highly cosmological. And it's impossible for me not to think about the inhabitants of the other house we concern ourselves with in this series. The dead who reside in Valhalla who perpetually train for a cosmic battle far ahead. But so far, I've not really addressed any case studies of what these kami themselves believed in their human lifetime. And I particularly want to highlight these special attack units, the so-called kamikaze, who are perhaps the most internationally renowned members of Yazakuni's divine retinue. I'm sure you've heard it all before, but supposedly these were all volunteers, at least according to the propaganda of the time. Secondly, you have the Western post-war world, which has cast the kamikaze not only as volunteers, but savage fanatics emblematic of the bloodlust of the warlike Japanese. In reality, they were a product of Japanese military desperation and predatory recruitment tactics that used peer pressure, threats, humiliation, and physical violence to create the illusion of choice. The young dudes who participated in these suicide missions were improperly trained, and their personal testimonies revealed that the deciding factor was not necessarily their flaming passion for the abstract cause, but a sense of commitment and responsibility to their peers. About a thousand kamikaze were students who had their graduations cut short and were drafted straight from the universities. And among these, many of the so-called volunteers were students of the arts and humanities, who were perhaps considered more disposable than the mechanics and engineers. Far from the zealots they have been painted as, the kamikaze were probably the most well-read and intellectually gifted force of the Japanese military. The diaries that some of these pilots left behind make for some of the most depressing reading I have ever seen. They wrote poetry, said goodbye to mothers and sweethearts, and wrestled to determine the place of war, patriotism, and sacrifice in the internal landscape of their philosophies. They vividly described the dread of waking up every morning thinking this is it, only for their final mission to be postponed yet another day. I can't even begin to fathom what it's like to have impending death just looming about you all the fucking time. The night before the flight seems to have been an odd circus of existential dread. They were allowed to drink quite a bit, and reactions spanned the entire spectrum. Cursing, crying, laughing, some smashed up furniture, some sang drunkenly, some just sat there catatonically, and others meditated. And we're not used to seeing kamikaze like this, right? We only see the footage of them putting on their rising sun bandanas and setting off, and then blowing themselves to smithereens against the deck of uh, an American aircraft carrier or something like that. Allegedly, the last thing that... Uh, these pilots would say to each other was, I will see you in Yasukuni. And most of them actually carried out their order, despite any doubts and grievances that they may have had. There's one particular pilot accounted for in Emiko Onuki Tierney's book, Kamikaze Diaries, that really caught my attention, and that is the sad boy existentialist Ichizo Hayashi. He was born into a Christian Japanese family. He aspired to be a philosopher, but decided to major in economics instead. This was in order to support his widowed mother. 
that didn't exactly go according to plan. He was drafted and went into the Navy, where he was eventually selected for the Special Attack Unit. Ichizo's favorite philosopher was the Dane Søren Kierkegaard, so much so that he carried a copy of The Sickness Unto Death with him on the plane when he took off for his final journey, which was to plunge into an American warship off of Okinawa in the spring of 1945. In this book, Kierkegaard lays out his philosophy of despair, quite fitting for a person about to die, don't you think? Even better, it illustrates Kierkegaard's famous dictum that whether you kill yourself or do not kill yourself, you will regret it either way. But it's not exactly the regular stereotype of a kamikaze pilot, is it? Ichizo Hayashi may have had his quirks, but he was not untypical. In his diary, he talks about the things that remind him of home, as well as wrestling with his country's wartime performance. At some point, he worries about Japanese war crimes in China and accuse his military leadership of glossing over issues that even he can see, calling for them to be brought to justice after the war. He regrets joining the Navy. He does not want to die. He misses home. He wants to get married. He reads the Bible and finds a fighting spirit in the philosophy of Kierkegaard. He doubts the cause he is fighting for, but that is not the point. The only way for him to take control of the situation is by making carrying out his suicidal order a matter of personal honor. In Rethinking Yasukuni, Kolster provides an analysis of the space of the shrine itself, and how the shrine is designed to rouse both aesthetic and spiritual admiration. I recall how my salaryman drinking buddy used the term beautiful as the main adjective to describe the shrine. And when I stepped up through the Tory gates of Yasukuni the following day, I found it impossible to disagree. The infamously controversial and revisionist museum on the site was closed, uh, so I did not get to experience that, for better or worse, but I did get to walk the shrine grounds to see the sanctuaries and the statues commemorating dogs and horses of the Japanese Imperial Army, as well as the kamikaze pilots, the tokotai, and the children and widows of the war dead. I watched as, every now and then, locals stepped up to the front of the shrine, bowing and clapping and throwing coins into the collection box. Around the corner, I could barely discern the inner sanctum beyond the walls where the names of all the war dead had been handwritten and archived, as well as the sanctuary where the Eire live. It all reminds me a little bit of Uncle Ingolf, to see the Japanese come here and maybe recall the losses of their own families. And I think about those gods, who may not have had any interest in godhood whatsoever, but now find themselves in the divine otherworldly comitatus of the emperor. The shrine has a shop. It is attended by shrine maidens who sell site-specific trinkets such as votive Yasukuni sake bottles shaped like cherry blossoms. As I exit through the parking lot, there are other off-brand gift shops and stalls as well that are full of less subtle displays of nationalism and imperial nostalgia. That's not to say that the temple itself is entirely free of those gestures either. A paper flyer I picked up on the shrine chronicles the alleged final words of a kamikaze pilot, preaching angrily about the dangers of Anglo-American imperialism. What a strange brew. What a bottomless pit of cognitive dissonance, right? For the remainder of the podcast, I'm going to read excerpts from the diary and letters of Ichizo Hayashi, the student of philosophy who reluctantly ascended into tragic godhood to dwell among the two and a half million gods between the cherry trees of Yasukuni Shrine. 
The first bit here is from his diary. It is easy to talk about death in the abstract, as the ancient philosophers discussed, but it is real death, I fear, and I don't know if I can overcome the fear. Even for a short life, there are many memories. For someone who had a good life, it is very difficult to part with it. But I reached a point of no return. To be honest, I cannot say that the wish to die for the Emperor is genuine, coming from my heart. However, it is decided for me that I die for the Emperor. Now this is from his final letters to his mother. Mother, please don't feel lonely after I die. This is an honorable death, fighting for the glory of the Imperial Nation. I'll put your photo right on my chest. I shall be sure to sink an enemy vessel. When you hear over the radio of our success in sinking their vessels, please remember that one of them is the vessel that I plunge into. I will have peace of mind knowing that mother is watching me and praying for me. It's like a dream. Tomorrow, I am no longer alive. Those who went on sortie yesterday are all dead. I can't feel it as reality. I feel like they will suddenly return. You might feel the same way about me, but please give it up. After all, and he quotes the Bible, leave the dead to bury their dead. Matthew 8.22 It's alright for you to cry. Please cry. But please do not be so sad. The enemy's action is being dulled. Victory is for us. Our mission will be the last blow to the enemy. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 I'll be going ahead of you. But I wonder if I would be allowed to enter heaven. Mother, Please pray for me. I cannot bear the thought of going to a place where you would not join me later. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. Now, while I still have your attention, let me tell you about my Patreon. As my patron, you get automatic access to early releases of new episodes, as well as a permanent 20% reduction on shirts from the Brute Norse Teespring store. Other rewards include access to the Brute Norse Discord community. And what about the recent overhaul to the physical reward system? Higher tier patrons now receive a handwritten postcard temporary tattoos, a secret gift, and dare I even mention the handsome, fully embroidered Brute Norse patches with iron-on functionality. Wear them to signal to fellow backwards wanderers that you're in on the Scandi Futurist conspiracy. As always, I'm Erik Storsen, and a thousand fucking thanks for walking backwards into the future with me today. Until next time, please stay alive.